Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I was listening to Daryl Cooper's excellent Martyr Made podcast on kind of the founding of modern Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And during that, he went into kind of this speech about nations and families and the necessity of a nation to break down kind of the clan family identity, the strong family identity and the tension that naturally exists with that. And I thought that was fascinating because we so often think, especially conservatives, people on the right, we think strong families, strong nation, family values. This is what builds a nation. These things are synonymous, but Daryl gave a really good argument as to why they're not. And I wanted to get into that today. So on the podcast with me today is Daryl Cooper. Thanks for coming on, man. Always a pleasure, man. You're one of my two or three favorite things on the internet, so it's all, always a pleasure. We don't do it nearly often enough. Yeah, feelings mutual here, man. We'll we'll step up our schedule. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I was wondering if you could just lay this out for people, because again, this is something that's probably counterintuitive, especially for a lot of conservatives, that there would be a tension between family identity, strong, extended families, and the idea of the nation and and it being you know kind of patriotism a national identity how are those things at odds well i guess the way to start that explanation would be to take it back to the origin of modern states right wherever you look in the world what you saw was a sovereign of some sort who was trying to consolidate power over the nobility and you saw these mechanisms that would take place uh, across the world. I mean, you would see them among the Baganda in Africa, you'd see them in Europe, everywhere, where you have the monarch and in the outlying provinces, different different areas are controlled by his various nobles and so forth. And they have actual power bases out there, people who are loyal to them, uh, to their family. And so one of the things that they would do is they would take, say, the first son, the oldest son of each family and bring them to court. In the capital and it would be a huge honor of course we're going to bring your young son and raise him in court so he can uh you know learn to to do all the things he needs to do as a noble it's a huge honor you can't say no to it and you know when when you look back and see the universality of something like that you kind of recognize that that uh there's a there's a sort of game being trying to break down uh the loyalty of these oldest sons to the provinces to break their connection with them and, and reorient their, their loyalty to the king, right? And so that's something that happens very, very early on. Now, once you get past that first layer of the nobility, you know, traditional societies, they don't try to break down uh, family connection among the mass of the people. In fact, they they nurture those things because they rely on them for self-governance. You know, these these old states, feudal states and so forth, they didn't have the kind of resources or reach to go out and be a totalitarian country if they wanted to. You know, they, they had to rely on these self-help mechanisms at the village and community level uh, in order to be able to govern themselves coherently. As you get up to the modern state, the total state, as you'd say, you know, you, you start to see a more direct attack on the family. And the Soviet Union is, you know, all, all the communist and revolutionary uh, uh, governments are, are perfect examples. But the Soviets are a great example of it, where 
you know, I mean, the, you know, the, there, there's the hero, the young boy they built statues of because he, because he turned his parents into the NKVD. You know, that was something that was lionized. Breaking down the authority of parents and specifically fathers is, um, is, you know, these are, these are competing loyalty systems. And in a, in a, in a country like ours, the family loyalty system and the national loyalty system, they don't really come much into conflict. You know, uh, that's sort of something in the past. Like you look at like the Hatfields and the McCoys, for example, um, you know, you had, uh, um, you know, state militias who were like on the brink of joining that fight because these two clans were at war. And that's the kind of exactly the kind of thing that a modern state wants to avoid at all costs. And in the United States, we've largely accomplished that. And we're sort of living with the costs of that right now, because there are costs to it, right? Like, uh, if you go back to even even in the modern day, if you go to uh, an Arab peasant, you know, out in the countryside in in one of the less developed Arab countries, um, lives in a village, traditional life, um, that th those communities will never and would never have produced existentialist philosophers because they have absolutely no use for them. You know, questions of like, who am I? Why am I here? Those things were all given to you you know, and they have a surplus of identity, if anything. And so, you know, if you talk to people who are from the Mediterranean countries, you know, Southern Italy or Spain or Portugal, Greece, uh, Arabs, you, uh, Armenians, just that whole, that whole kind of zone where the extended family still exercises a lot of uh, influence over all the individuals is, uh, you know, those people feel boxed in. They feel like a lot of their choices for who they want to become and what kind of person they can be or are already so predetermined for them that they can't wait to break out of it. And they envy, you know, Anglo-Americans who, who see their parents once a year on Christmas if they're lucky. And I think now, though, that the majority of people in, in the modern West, at least, have already gone through that process of disconnection. You know, they're finding that uh, maybe there's a kind of freedom on the other side of it, but it's really the freedom of homelessness you know, and that's the mess we're trying to clean up right now. Yeah, it's interesting, but that so much is, of this is linked to the idea of the nation state. You pointed this out when you were talking about on your podcast, and I've been reading Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, and he makes the same point that in the Middle East, the nation state never really worked because they, that's not the way that they were socially organized because the tribe, the clan, was so powerful really you go directly from the tribe to islam like there's only two levels of identity there and in, in, there's no this intermediate nation state simply never really grasps hold because that because they don't have that kind of infrastructure the institutions never arose and i guess that really speaks to what you were saying when it comes to dependence you know these these more feudal societies or these more tribal societies they don't have a level of complexity, a level of institutional power to take the burdens of dependence away from the family structure. So they can't destroy family identity because they require it to function. But as the state grows and builds these institutions, it seems to naturally unload. Yes, it unloads that dependence. It frees the people in some sense, right? But simultaneously, it enslaves them to 
kind of this higher nation state ideal. You, you are freed from those communal bonds at a very low level, but you, but more and more of your life gets consumed into this loyalty to only the state. Your identity is also bound there as well. And a healthy society. Um, I think what you find is uh, people's first layer of loyalty, the, 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 the layer of loyalty that they would betray everything else for, uh, is their friends and their family. And then from there, it's the friends of the friends and family of their friends and family, right? Until you get out to a community. And now those concentric circles of concern and affection can, they can go out quite a ways, uh, you know, to the nation, maybe even to uh, international alliances in certain circumstances. But the stability of all that is really built on uh the the more abstract outer layers uh, of loyalty nurturing and supporting the ones closer to home you know you're loyal to your uh, country you're loyal to your community because it 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 nurtures and supports your friends and family and, and yourself you're loyal to your nation because it supports your community and your friend etc right and that's sort of a, a rooted organic uh natural uh polity when you come in from the top and establish a state and then start trying to put together an identity underneath it, as we did in the United States, you know, uh, which I, it, it never could have gone any other way. You know, uh, the, the Anglos who settled the 13 colonies, um, you know, they, they had two choices. They could bring in immigrants from all over Europe uh, or they could give up most of what is now America to the Spanish and the French and everybody else. Like in order to settle that territory and and become the country we are, you know, throughout the, the 18th century, that immigration was absolutely necessary. Obviously a very different situation from what we've got now, but, you know, that we needed to build up the continent. We needed to settle the continent. When you don't do that, I mean, you see what happened in the Southwest after the Mexican-American War. We really failed to adequately settle the Southwest and now it's being gradually taken back. And, uh, you know, you see, actually, you actually see something somewhat similar in Russia with their failure to, to really adequately settle Siberia and, you know, long-term, I think that they probably have concerns that, uh, you know, China's got their eye on some of the farmland up there and stuff. And, you know, it's not going to happen tomorrow or the next day, but who knows what the map's going to look like 500 years from now. And so, you know, in the United States, I mean, you got to think about it from just like we've had almost no time to catch our breath from the beginning of this country, right? You, uh, we, we, we achieve our independence from Britain and mostly in Anglo country and obviously slaves in the South uh, at that point. But within a couple decades, I mean, you have Irish and Germans flooding in, completely transforming the face of our uh, urban politics and just the society in general, creating a new cleavage that didn't really exist before between the Protestants and the Catholics. Uh, no sooner did the, the second generation of Irish and Germans start to get settled and a little bit assimilated and so forth, than we started to get Eastern and Southern Europeans, an even bigger wave coming in in the 1880s through, you know, say like 1910 or so. And these people came in, came into conflict with the previous generation of immigrants. Uh, you have the Anglo power structure on, on top trying to manage this whole thing, you know, to a large extent. I wouldn't say to a large extent, but to a certain extent, 
the early progressive movement was largely an Anglo attempt to contain and and manage the chaos that was coming in as all of these disparate peoples were, were uh, entering the country and bringing different different ideas and traditions to it, you know, and um, 1924, obviously, we had uh, the immigration law that more or less locked things down. And you start to see just maybe around World War Two, you know, I think World War Two did have like a profound binding effect on on the American country like it, it was it was probably the the, the single strongest uh let's say um uh, the single strongest moment of american ethnogenesis short of the revolution itself right and you know you saw for example like during the civil war after the battle of vicksburg uh vicksburg didn't celebrate the fourth of july for like 80 years or something after that and the first time that they started celebrating the 4th of July again was July 4th, 1944, about a month after D-Day. And so it, it brought the country back together in profound ways, right? And all of these different people, you know, you have to remember that up until really the like 1950s and early 60s, all of our big cities were still broken up into ethnic enclaves. You know, the Irish lived over there and the Italians lived over there and the Jews lived over there. And they all thought of themselves as Americans, but they were uh, they, they they were all operating it at different levels of assimilation based on their attachment to their old country, right? So if you look, for example, at like uh, at, at the Italians, when the Italians started coming in in the 1880s and 90s, a lot of them would come and go. You know, the men would come over and work for a while, then they'd go back and buy a farm and that would be that. Or they'd come over for a while, but they still had extended family that they were close to back there and they'd go back on a regular basis. So they're much more immersed in the culture of, of the old country. And as a result, Italians maintained a sort of ethnic identity. And not there's also the fact that, you know, Italians and Jews if you compare them to like Germans and Irish and Scandinavians and so forth, if you look at an ethnic map of the United States, they're still much more concentrated basically within a few hundred miles of where they entered the country in New York back then. You know, they haven't spread out all over the country to the same extent as say like the Irish. And so they've been, they've managed to hold together uh, a certain ethnic identity uh, much longer than the others did. You know, I think somebody who's Irish American today might like uh, celebrating St. Patrick's day, but, uh, that's about it, you know, as far as their attachment to the old country, especially like the political goings on and so forth of the old country. Um, when you, you know, when the Great Migration kicked off and you start getting all of the northern and western cities flooded with huge, huge, overwhelming numbers of African-Americans, you know, especially after the Second World War, it started after the First World War, but it really picked up uh, during and after the Second World War. You know, you started to see a lot of the same systemic breakdowns that we saw first when the Irish flooded in and we realized, oh, we need like a public school system because there's just a bunch of Irish orphans running around the streets and we got to civilize these people somehow. And we more, we kind of got that set up and it was working for the purpose it was established for. And when the Eastern and Southern Europeans started flooding in, the system got 
overwhelmed again, but we managed to put that back together and through, uh, you know, different cities and, and places did it different ways, but we did a pretty good job with that. And the third wave came with the great migration when all the African-Americans started moving into the cities. And that was when you started to see the various European ethnics in their cities uh, begin to step back a bit from their, their uh, you know, ethnic identity and embrace you know, whether uh, more of an American identity or a racial identity, something like that, because and you, and you really see this in, in very stark terms, you know, when when you would see organizations pop up that, you know, in, in, a, in a place like New York, where, uh, you know, before, like New York was a very delicate balance of ethnic politics, you know, it was understood that if there was an Irish mayor, then there should be a Italian district attorney and a Jewish, you know, city council president and so forth. Like, it's a very delicate balance, something that really is like, a, it was a great achievement that they managed to, to, to create a system that, that balanced those things. And uh, with the, the large influx of African Americans, you start to see all these groups that never really cooperated so much before, or they cooperated from within their groups with the others, you know, start to meld together. And that really accelerated, of course, when people started moving out to the suburbs and those ethnic enclaves all started to break down. And I think maybe today, you know, now that a lot of those strong identities have been attenuated or wiped out even, um, you know, we've kind of swung the other way from, you know, that surplus of identity that, uh, you know, maybe an Arab peasant might might feel bound by to a real deficit of identity that leaves people vulnerable to, you know, branded identities or really any anybody who's got uh, a compelling uh, identity to sell to them. People are really looking for that. And it's, um, you know, whether or not something like that can be put back together once it's been torn apart, I don't really know. I guess we're, I mean, we're, we're kind of in uncharted territory here, you know, you have yeah. to think like homo sapiens, if we've been around for 200,000 years or something like that, for all of that until like the 1960s, you were very deeply rooted in a family context, a community context. And that's where your sources of meaning came from. It's where you're just every, it, that we're completely rooted in that it's it's built into our biology to the point that you know if you if you are cast out of your group whether you know you're a high school kid getting bullied or just whatever where you 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 feel that you're a complete burden to your group or or totally outcast you get depressed you get suicidal you start to fall apart like very quickly like people will die from that like they'll die early from from uh, the stress of that and so it's built in very deeply and so, you know, from from the advent of Homo sapiens up until about 1970 or something, that's how we lived. And all of a sudden, everybody, virtually everybody in our society has been just completely pulled out of every social context that they were pre would previously have been rooted in and just thrown out on their own, you know, and told that this that this cult of self-creation is is going to uh, is going to get them you know, to, to another plane of existence, I guess. But, um, you know, it hasn't done that so far. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm skeptical that it's, that it's ever going to. Do you think that the right has put itself in an odd place because it's so scared to, uh, to address 
the issue of identity that ironically I think it's increased the salience of race because all of these ethnic nested identities which once would have I think made race less of a, a focus because you would have been nested more in, in probably a particular uh, ethnic identity instead you've you've hollowed out all of those intermediate institutions there's no there's nothing to hold on to in between kind of the family and these larger manipulated voting blocks and so therefore they're wielded at a, a much wider level and the, the fact that you're not willing to address what those intermediate social institutions are and what are necessary and how they're bound, bound to identity means you've necessarily hollowed out anything that could have stopped, I guess, kind of the broad manipulation of racial categories. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's also deprived people, like at the same time that it's, it was an attempt to lure people to identify with the nation state. At the same time, it's alienated people from the nation state, because once you get past that hurdle and into the state we're in now, Nobody feels represented by the nation state. You know, I, I, you talk to people uh, about, you know, the, mo most, most people in the United States, they just, they can't imagine any system other than, uh, you know, mass democracy or some form of tyranny. Like that's the only really two categories they have in their political uh, horizon. Um, but I tell, I ask people sometimes, like, do you, who, who tell me that, do you real do you feel represented by this system? Like is having one out of 160 million votes, is that really making, do you feel like your voice is being heard or anything? And I ask, you know, I, I just offer a suggestion of like, you know, what if you had a, what if you had a system where you didn't vote except maybe at the local level or something like that. But uh, if you're a member of a labor union, that labor union is part of a larger national union, uh, which has, you know, which is maybe part of a, say, federation of labor, which has a seat at the table in government. If you're a member of a church, if you're a member of various community organizations and all these kind of things, all of these things uh, build up to the state and national level and have a seat at the table. And then those now within those organizations in your labor union or something, you guys can vote on whatever you want. You can run that however you guys want to run that. And wouldn't you feel like you're, you, you were being more represented or at least potentially more represented in a system like that than you would be by just having everybody go to the polls every four years? And I don't know necessarily that that is how it would play out. Obviously, all institutions can be corrupted. Uh, but, you know, it's an alternative that would uh, that, that I think would sort of. It, it, it would return us a bit to that uh, to, to a system where those those affinities closer to home and those institutions closer to home are nurtured by the larger system, right? I mean, it would give people an incentive to join their labor union and be active in it because that's how you get your voice heard in government to be active in your church and so forth. And there's no incentive for really any of those things anymore. And all of those incentives have been taken away. I mean, if you look at, for example, just Go back to the Great Depression, and you imagine if something like that were to happen today, just the chaos that would break out in every American city. It was just, we would not survive the Depression the way we survived it back in the 1930s. In the 1930s, you still had enough uh, communities and, and various community organizations, churches and so forth, that could engage in self-help so that you know the government didn't have any of these programs yet. A lot of them were put together because of the Depression. 
but they were able to take care of their people. And today we don't have any of those things. And because we don't have them, you know, like it was understood in the day that if your church, your fellow church members were helping you get past a period of unemployment, that, you know, this is something that you're, first of all, that you're not demanding, you're asking for, you're asking for help. They're giving you help as a member of their community. And you're, you're grateful for that help, you know, and you understand that, you know, there's even probably, and there always was this up until uh, mid-century, you know, a certain level of shame that went along with accepting that kind of help, which is not good. Nobody wants to be in that situation where you feel that shame. But we kind of have decided that nobody should ever feel that kind of shame or that kind of pressure. And that these are these things are, are rights that should be bestowed. And so instead of having to embed yourself in a community that you might need one day because things might, you know, the world might turn against you. Uh, you don't have to do that anymore. You can be completely on your own. And there are bureaucratic systems in place to, to do all the things that uh, a community would have been able to handle on their own just a few decades ago. And so it delegitimizes a lot of those things. You know, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the authority of a Catholic parish came from the fact that it supported its members. It was, it, was a, it was a community organization that you could fall back on if you really needed it. And when those things go away, you'd like to say people should just sort of, you know, in the case of church, just sort of have their abstract faith and that should be enough. But in, in reality, you know, institutions need, they, they, they gain legitimacy uh, through the support that they give the people who are involved with them, you know, and the state has sort of appropriated all those functions and all of those local institutions have been have been hollowed out. Yeah, this really came together for me. Bertrand de Juvenal wrote On Power, and in there he explains the destruction of these institutions, and it's really the illusion of independence, right? We we why the state is inarguably stronger than it's ever been, but we think we're freer than we've ever been. And how do we have this dichotomy? Well, it's because we've been freed of all those lower dependencies, right? And so, yes. we, yep. yeah, it's all, it's all just tied to the state. And the state doesn't call on us that often, we think, as compared to you know these day-to-day -day ones. And many people living in those traditional societies would agree. But we don't understand kind of the, the cost that comes with that. I, I remember I was reading uh, The Ancient City, and, uh, and uh, he, he's talking about kind of how Rome became more powerful. And he says, in order for the city to to become great, the families had to be destroyed. You know, the patricians, mm. the power of the patricians had to be hollowed out. And just, and that, that really struck me the way that uh, for Rome to become the empire that it was going to become, it had to destroy the civic fabric that had made it what it was up until that point. And do you think part of the problem is that we never noticed that transition uh, in the same way that the Romans probably didn't notice when they went from the Republic to the empire, we never noticed when kind of the super organism that is, that is uh, beyond kind of the, the nation state as we understood it arose. And now we've kind of been living in its shadow uh, you know, up to this point. Um, yeah, for sure. We didn't notice it. At least the mass culture didn't notice it as it was happening. Um, you know, I think America is a very unique case, right? Just because, America was never going to be a, a nation state in the same way that 
Poland is a nation state. Like, it was just never going to happen. Like we needed to bring people in if we were going to be able to populate this continent and pacify the Native Americans and keep competing European powers uh, or who knows, maybe Eastern powers, like if, if the Anglos tried to do this whole thing themselves uh, from coming in and just that, that, that brought that, that, that threw American identity into flux almost from the beginning. And it's, it's been that way more or less uh, for our entire history with the exception, I guess, of maybe about 1925 to 1965, maybe something like that. And so, you know, like if you look at uh, the difference, for example, between uh, some of the Eastern kingdoms uh, in, in medieval and in early modern Europe, and the Western and Northern European ones. You know, if you go to Poland, Lithuania, or Hungary, places like that, you have examples of countries where uh, the, the sovereign was never really able to break the power of the nobility. And as a result, they never put together states with the same cohes cohesiveness and ability to, to, to act powerfully that you saw in, for example, uh, like in Russia, for example. Now, Russia's a, the far other extreme where the, the czar broke the nobility and made, you know, completely domesticated the nobility. And that has its, its sort of downsides too, because you can get a state that's too top heavy. And if you go to Western Europe, England's a great example. They found a sort of balance in there. And, you know, I, I there's definitely, you, you, if you look at, uh, at Europe, you know, Europe's great because you kind of have this, yeah, the, the, the cohesion of states and the strength of extended families sort of shades off from north to south and east to west, right? If you go down to, like, you look at northern Italy. Northern Italy has been something like we might call a nation state for quite some time. Southern Italy, you know, they had to be dragged like the south, kicking and screaming into that situation. And to this day, it's still hard for the Italian national government to control everything that's going on in the south. You see, like in Greece and you see in Spain, for example, like the national government has had a lot of trouble kind of holding things together the way a Scandinavian country or, or England or Germany does. And those are countries where the nuclear family has been predominant for you know, 1500, a long time, like really long time, the nuclear family has been predominant. Anglo culture in particular, it's been, uh, it's been a much stronger force than it, it was elsewhere in Europe going back to 500, 600 AD at least. And so it's a lot easier. Those are much smaller blocks you have to move around to build up the edifice of the nation state than trying to move around these large rooted extended families who have uh, you know, deep ties to specific regions of their country and things like that. And, you know, because, you know, and there's an economic aspect to this too. I mean, you know, when you have the nation state system and the capitalist system, both of these things are like deeply at war with uh, local affinities and local loyalties, right? Like it, 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 it it's a huge bummer uh, for McDonald's that people in India won't eat beef, right? You know, they, they, they have to, maybe you have to rebrand all these pork products and all these other, it's just a whole hassle. And it would be great for McDonald's if India just gave up their religion and ate beef, that would be so much easier, much more efficient. And, uh, you know, I, like the nation state 
I think is is much more on some level is more consciously attacking those institutions because they challenge its power. Whereas capitalism, I think kind of corrodes those things, you know, more, more than that. And I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, again, to go back to the Soviet union, you had like during uh, the 1930s and Stalin was in charge, he had NKVD squads going around and hunting down these, there, there were these sort of traveling uh, bards in Ukraine who kind of, it was mostly in, outside of the cities in Ukraine. It was still mostly an illiterate population. And the way that their cultural traditions and their sort of epic history of themselves was passed on was through these bards. You, most of them were blind. And they would travel around and tell these stories and sing these songs and, and, and so forth. And it was an institution in the country going back many centuries. And Stalin had those people hunted down to the point that he was having blind blind men just killed because they might be one of these guys. Like he very actively wanted to wanted to break that down. Just, uh, you know, that 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 specific local culture. And, we, you know, we can look at that and say that's just a monstrous thing to do. And of course it is. But it was a necessary thing to do if you were trying to accomplish what Stalin wanted to accomplish in the Soviet Union, you know, and the long term effects of that, you know, after 70 years of living in a state where parent uh, kids were encouraged to, to turn in their parents to the secret police, where everybody worried that their neighbor or even members of their own family might be compromised by the state that they, you know, everything they're saying to one another might come back on them in some way. So they have to be guarded even among the people they're closest to. It broke the whole society up into just completely atomized individuals. Like every person, they might have well might as well have been like floating in a space suit in space by themselves. That's how disconnected they were. And when the state system started to fall apart, you know, you look at Russia and the in the post-Soviet world in the 1990s and what happened there. You know, I remember uh, years ago, I was I, I read uh, a book by that investor guy with the bow tie, uh, Jim Rogers. And, you know, he uh, he's like a billionaire and he went and he outfitted this Mercedes spent like 200 grand outfitting this Mercedes with big off road tires and like made this like really just crazy vehicle. And he decided he was going to go on like a trip around the world. He spent like a year and a half or something just going all over the place. And when he was in the post-Soviet world, he said that one of the things that struck him more than anything is that he would go to this, uh, this hotel or this dacha, like on the black sea. And it's just a gorgeous setting. And this hotel is so opulent and beautiful. It's just the, everything about it. And yet you would go in and all of the doorknobs and the water faucets, they were all just cheap things that had been thrown in there because everything else had been stripped away and you know, as things were breaking down. And that's what you end up with when you have a society that's completely composed of individuals. You know, you lose the ability to convince yourself that you shouldn't just take what you can get for yourself right now and not worry about anybody else or the future or, or you know, anything beyond your, your immediate needs. And so you go into this, you know, a period of of asset stripping, which is really like the state I think we've been in since the 1970s. You know, ever since we ever since we realized that there was 
a tremendous, like that we didn't really have to innovate or grow our, our businesses or anything anymore because there were just trillions of dollars to be made arbitraging labor and regulate regulations and stuff by outsourcing all these jobs. Like why would I, as a CEO take a risk spending, you know, a billion dollars to innovate a new product when I can make $10 billion by shipping my factories to another country. And so that's what we started doing with no concern for the future, no sense that uh, you had any kind of an obligation to the place that, that, you were living and that you were from, you know, and, you know, it may be that that, 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 that mentality is sort of built into America at a very deep level, like from its founding, you know, in the sense that, you know, in, in the United States, like a community has no rights. Like it's not a, it's not considered a corporate body the way a corporation is, for example, a corporation is a legal person in certain ways. And yet a community is not it has no collective rights whatsoever which means you know when a business owner wants to pull his factory out of some some midwestern town he's going to move it to mexico the individuals in that place can complain but the community itself has nothing to say about it it has no standing in our in our system and that's a fairly new thing you know the idea that even in the United States, actually, like when I really think about it, it's sort of a new thing. You know, if you you go back, like I was talking about, to the, the New York ethnic politics, and it wasn't exactly codified in law or anything, but it was understood that, uh, you know, the, the Jews and the Irish and the Italian, they had certain rights. Like they, they had a certain amount of, now, of course, those rights were dependent on their ability to exercise power and retain and retain them, make sure that their presence was felt. But it got to a point where everybody did realize that it's not just that you're a New Yorker, it's that you live on the Lower East Side, you work in the garment industry, and you know, you're you're an Eastern European Jew. And you're part of this group that that has uh, a certain a certain place in this society with certain obligations and certain rights and privileges. And you know, that, that I think has been just completely lost. I mean, maybe the only place you see it anymore, it's the only form of immigration that, you know, the left really doesn't like is when you see them pushing back against gentrification, all of a sudden these ethnic communities have, you know, <laughs> strong provincial rights again, that they should be able to defend. Yeah. The, the liberation of capital, it's deterritorialization means that there's no there, there's a complete destruction of lower time preference because there, there's it's no longer grounded in serving anything it's no longer particular to a people or to their welfare and so there's no interest by the operations of capital to you know to, to better that area it's only about removing the barriers and and, and kind of uh, removing the friction of the system and the efficiency of the bureaucracy and that's kind of ironic because if you look at uh, you know, if you look at Marxist literature and you read it, like the you can you can find a lot of them like talking how important about how important feminism is because feminism destroys the family, and if you can destroy the family, you can destroy the nation state and its borders and its preferences for particular peoples, and therefore you can accelerate the the you know uh, the global Marxist revolution. People forget that in order for you to get this like globalist communist uh, you know utopia. You have to accelerate through the capitalist period of destruction of uh, of identity. In fact, uh, Marx specifically said he was a free trade guy 
up to the right, point at which right. it destroys national <laughs> identity. And so people forget that this is that, that it's actually a handmaiden of this process and 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 that you know Marx was actually counting on uh, on that aspect of capitalism to to create kind of the global utopia. And, and that's kind of the next thing I wanted to ask you is one of the problems we're running into, and people can call this communism. I prefer managerialism. I think that because you can get different flavors of it that don't have to be communist. And I think that's what so many people have had a problem with. But do you think that this arms race of states, like, you you know, as, as you were saying, many states that do not go through this process of, of destruction of family identity, that don't reduce the family down to uh, kind of that, uh, that nuclear or, or below structure. But do you think that the, that reduction or, it, it, you know, the fact that if you don't go through that, you don't become a stronger state, you, you aren't able to centralize and compete is a problem because, you know, every state is in an arms race, basically, you know, once France gets the lay of a on mass, well, you better have the ability, you know, to conscript people if you want to, you know, you know, kind of stay in the race. If they build tanks, you build tanks. If they build nukes, you build nukes. And eventually, like, your state just can't compete if you don't destroy families. But at the same time, you're also breaking down, you know, things that you'll need, that you know, if, if you don't have a perfectly run state. Yeah, you know, it's actually very interesting. If you look throughout history, there's this pattern that you kind of see throughout where uh, depending on what the dominant weapon systems are in a given in a given time and place, you see uh, you see certain effects on the political and social culture of of the people who are who are involved in it. So for example, like you go back to when uh, the chariot was just a dominant battlefield presence. You know, it was running through everybody. Chariots are expensive. Horses are expensive. Armor is expensive. You had a very aristocratic society. Power very much concentrated at the top. Uh, same thing when you had, you know, when heavy cavalry dominated the European battlefield. Very expensive. Uh, when you look at, say, like ancient Greece, you had a citizen army because their tact, their battle tactics were based on the phalanx system. And they need, you know, and granted it wasn't every single, you know, it, you had to be a, a citizen in good standing who could uh, afford to outfit himself as a soldier in order to be able to participate in the polis and be a soldier. Uh, but you needed a lot of people to make that system work. And you get up to, uh, you know, say after, especially after the 30 years war with the reforms of Gustavus Adolphus and then just into the early modern uh, period of, 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 of warfare going through like world war one and two, you know, we drafted 16 million men. The United States did during world war two, or, or we called up 16 million men in, in, to go to war, fulfill various functions. You, uh, you know, in, in that, in that era, um, whether anybody liked it or not, like people, average people were realizing that they had a certain amount of value to the state, that they were necessary to the state's survival. And, and the powers that be understood that to, you know, to a large degree, that they couldn't alienate these people past a certain point because uh, they needed them, you know, in order to be able to compete like you're talking about. And it does feel like, you know, we may be moving into uh, back, back toward you know, sw swinging back in the other direction right now with technology moving to the point where, I mean, even our wars, you know, are they're, they're largely fought by massive, uh, weapon systems that can only be afforded by, by nation states. That's been the case for a while, but, uh, technology that, you know, can, can be, oh, that, that really makes the, 
mass conscription of soldiers uh, pretty irrelevant, right? And, you know, the ability to for a state to control and manipulate its population in the modern age to, in order to get them to do what they want, although the science of that has not been perfected, and a lot of times they uh, create effects the opposite of what they're trying to achieve, they are getting better and better, better at it, you know, all the time. And that's something that, you know, I think we should all be pretty concerned about, you know, I, when I think about, you know, in, in, in the past, when a state became tyrannical past a certain point, the rulers had to, had to worry about an uprising from, you know, within the, the population. Nowadays with, you know, everybody sort of being a cyborg by proxy with their phones and being tracked in everything they do from where they go to what they buy to who they talk to. And just with AI systems building detailed personality profiles of every single individual and social profiles of, of every single individual in the, in the society. Um, you know, I think it would be, it would be very hard to even e e like to organize for resistance in any form, right? And that's something that like, this is, this is an important point that people talk about, uh, you know, you see this on the dissident right all the time. Like we need some kind of a revolution. We need, you know, I, I hope that, you know, uh, maybe the, just some kind of accelerationist dream where things fall apart and then we can really sort of come together and, and, and make this happen. And that is a, that is a, a completely wrong way of, of thinking about the situation in a situation where everything crumbles and falls apart and everything is up for grabs. It is going to be the people who are already organized and prepared for that, uh, who already have institutions and power structures put together to, to take advantage, who are going to come out the best in that fight. You know, you don't organize yourself. You don't organize your community in the midst of a breakdown like that. When uprisings have happened in the past, it wasn't just a mass of individuals who were who, who were you know deciding to rebel against the king. These were families and communities and regions that had very, very deep ties and loyalty to one another. And they were rising up. And you can kind of do that, you know, uh, without having to worry so much about whether the king's agents are going to penetrate your organization or something. And uh, nowadays, like, you know, when you have people as disconnected as we are, um, I think that breakdown is probably is, is probably the last thing people should be looking forward to. Well, I would think of it. It's not so much looking forward to, but I would think of it this way. I, I think I, I think you're right that there's probably not a lot of chance of any kind of revolution or those kind of things. I don't think that that that's kind of in the cards for a lot of reasons, including the ones that you mentioned there. But I think we are testing the limits of how the total state can control people without just burning its social capital to the ground. As we said, you know, you're, you're, yes, you are gaining more control. Yes, you are, uh, you know, have these uh, incredible systems of observation of those things, but you also can't get your planes to like take off and land reliably. <laughs> right. And so how long can you operate a complex network of interdependent systems while destroying your social capital. I think the answer to that is low. I think what's going to happen, if anything, is, and this isn't an optimistic view, to be clear. I'm not saying this is the good outcome. I'm just saying it's the likely one, is that these systems collapse in on themselves because they simply cannot be maintained because we, we simply refuse to educate people in important things. We refuse to have people bound together 
in consequential you know social formations and instead we hollow everything out right now the total state is more or less released and and forgive me because this is going to be a very materialistic explanation but it, it's the best analogy i've got the total state has released a um a a uh intellectual pathogen they they've released a uh we're going to evolutionarily select for people who can resist mimetic pathogens we we've 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 used mimetic pathogens to break all possible social bonds, which is what we're seeing now, right? Like the, our version of the Soviet kid informing on their parent is the kid who informs on their parent that they won't let them get a trans surgery, right? Like that's, that's what we're doing. We're doing the exact same thing. We're at the same level of, of kind of total state breakdown. Uh, but we're just using like, you know, sexual liberation as the sledgehammer against the family instead of something else. But like eventually all those people are just going to eliminate themselves from the gene pool. Like they're just going to strip themselves out of, out of competition at any level. And when they do that, like the thing that will be selected for is people who are able to resist. I think that, you know, the, uh, that, that kind of mimetic pathogen and build themselves into communities, protect themselves and, and nest themselves in, in a different level of identity. That, a, that's whole, my a, a, a whole nation of Amish Mormons and ultra Orthodox Jews. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I mean, you know, in, in various ways, yes, and I and and maybe those won't be the specific groups that went out, but they'll definitely be the ones with a head start. Like, uh, I, I, you know, a lot of the assumptions we have about the continuance of our current technological society is the idea that we'll continue to have this artificial elevation across the globe of infrastructure provided by the first world but that's this is very short the, the, you know the, that's not going to continue right like you, you're not going to have people shipping yeah people will still have cell phones and stuff in a lot of these areas but but uh there will not be this constant network of uh you know of corporations and things holding up uh technology i think globally and so i think in many ways that's going to collapse back into itself and the thing that's going to really matter is the people who are able again to resist this stuff Maybe the ones that could do that and adapt to technology simultaneously. Maybe the Amish aren't the best example because they've taken themselves out of the way, you know, out of, out of the the field in that way. But some kind of hybrid, right? Someone who who can live their life in a in an Amish style way personally, but still integrate technology in a way that allows them to be competitive in a in you know, a, I guess a state scenario. The Yukon Federation. <laughs> you ever read Fitzpatrick's War? I can't say I have. Uh, you'd love it. It's a science fiction book that takes place like in the 2500s after America's fallen apart. And an Amish-like group that does use certain limited technologies is the only one that can kind of hold it together. And they form this whole North American empire. It's a good book. You'd like it. Very right-wing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's something that's very difficult to do partly because, you know, I, what I find is, is people, especially people in cities, I should say, it's less, less true outside of cities, but most people are in cities is, is and this has accelerated a lot since COVID, you know, you see people who are borderline agoraphobic people who are socially anxious to an extreme degree when it comes to actually having to try to break past like the initial layer of, of small talk with somebody. Um, People have almost forgotten how to do that. And most of their human relationships have been uploaded. You know, they're with other avatars online and their own self, you know, the, 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 
the self that they feel uh, is is has really been uploaded online to a large degree. So that your actual life is just, you know, for content mining. You know, it's just a thing that you do so that you have things to upload and enhance your online your online identity. And these things are obviously not stable, and they're profoundly uh, they're they're profoundly vulnerable to well, mimetic contagion, like you said, right? They're profoundly vulnerable to uh, just the influences of, of propaganda and things that uh, maybe an individual who's rooted in a community would not be so vulnerable to. You know, that the person who who is feels just completely locked into their extended family and everyone's always in their business and, you know, it's just, you've always got some family function to go to and it's just... You know, you you have to go to church every. It's just this whole range of of aspects of your identity that are just given to you, and that are don't you don't really feel uh, are an option unless you're prepared to live with you know a sense of profound guilt. Um, those people often feel very trapped. Those people are the least vulnerable to propaganda. The le- I mean, actually, you know, a chapter I think is in section three of uh, Elul's book on. Uh, propaganda. It's so good about that exact thing. For propaganda to work, you have to break down all of these institutions and leave people there by themselves. Because if they're with a bunch of other people who, uh, you know, are part of something that has its own corporate existence, uh, you know, not separate from necessarily, but but uh, its own corporate existence besides the whatever system is trying to propagandize it, they're going to have defense mechanisms against it. And uh, you know, we're we're far down the line. And I think that, you know, with people uh, exporting larger and larger portions of their identity online, you know, they're, 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 that that portion of their identity is much more vulnerable to to manipulation by various means. And, you know, it's uh, yeah. So you mentioned this a couple times and I want to come back to it because it's, I think it's important to what we're talking about, but just important for people in general. It's critical at this moment. You and Lafayette Lee had an exchange in I am 1776 on American identity. And you've brought up m- multiple times the way that American ethnogenesis has stalled repeatedly. Right. And there's this weird moment because we know that multi-ethnic empires work. Like there are multiple examples of, of multi-ethnic empires succeeding, but they almost always worked in the sense that everybody kind of lived in their own area. Different ethnoses were divided into different areas and they were ruled kind of by their own local authorities and everybody just kind of kicked things up to the empire. Like the empire could call on you to, you know, troops and taxes and things but they, they weren't foolish enough to try to go in and break the language and the habits of the people, unless they wanted to like literally ethnically cleanse them. That, that was the, the, the method by which that was done. And so we know that there, there's a way they can do that, but the distribute, the distribution in the United States, I don't think works that way. And we've kind of, in many ways already broken those identities forcefully. Like it, it both, both just, through technology and through legally, like we've legally taken action to rearrange neighborhoods and, and things to, to break down those identities and those kind of social co- social cohesion that would allow, um, allow America to work that way. So what we're really trying to force is the ethnogenesis at a, at a basically empire scale. And, and my question is, 
is there a way forward for American identity that can be healthy? Is there a way, you know, would it be regional? Would it be united as an, as a nation? Is there, a, or are we doomed to kind of come apart in this way? Like, what do you think is, is the future of that given the kind of the way of the United States form? Um, well, obviously we're at a very late hour when we're having this conversation. Right. And I think that, you know, although we weren't an empire proper, like in the same way, a multi-ethnic empire proper, I think that through a lot of our history, we had some of those qualities in the sense that there was an Anglo power structure that sort of kept its hand on the steering wheel. You know, these old families that, uh, that uh, you know, mostly in the east, but they spread out a little later on. And but but there was this Anglo power structure that sort of kept its hand on the steering wheel as all these other people were coming in, and they had various means to incorporate talented people from the uh, from the ethnics. Uh, you know, that you get to go to Harvard and join Skull and Bones, and we teach you how to be an elite. And now you're one of us, and you know you're William F. Buckley or something. They had mechanisms to do that, but there was this this Anglo power structure overseeing everything that had a sense of proprietary you know, possession of the country, that, that this is something that they inherited and that they are going to leave to their own descendants. And, you know, you, but you get up to the 1960s and 70s and for a variety of reasons, that power structure just evaporated. You know, the, the, the like Nelson Rockefeller died in 1979 and he's the last Rockefeller anybody cared about because the rest, you know, they just didn't have kids who were ready to rise to that level of leadership uh, in the country. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with just the age old hatred of, you know, Northern Northeastern hatred of the South and what happened, you know, during desegregation and the need by the Anglo elites in the North to, to just, prove through every action that they could possibly take that we're not them. We're not like them. You know, we don't care about our own group. We don't care about these boundaries like they do. And so it all got sort of coded for those people as, as a negative thing, you know, looking after your own and and thinking of yourself as part of a, a a corporate group. Um, And so, you know, like today, you know, like, I, I just think that, you know, if, if, like a group like the neocons, you know, these low rent, uh, you know, fail sons who uh, the idea that they would just move in and take over American foreign policy back when the Harrimans and the Rockefellers and, you know, those type of family, it never would have happened. They never would have allowed that. They would have just it just wouldn't happen. But since that that power structure has sort of evaporated, the American system is just available to whoever happens to be the most organized group who can who can do that and you know neocons are they're a well-organized uh group that that knows how to exercise power within a context of sort of social and political chaos like we have and if we were going to maintain this thing at a national level i think it would mean having to reconstitute some kind of an elite that had uh, legitimacy, even if it was only through, uh, you know, a profound understood, uh, level of power. Um, I think that's going to be very difficult to put together. I I don't know if like, I try to think of other examples in history where that's been put together without, you know, a total 
either a conquest or total upheaval in society that rearranged everything. Um, but I do think that like our best hope probably uh, is that we end up with some mix of regionalism and where, you know, people go back to identifying more with their uh, state, with their region, with their local culture, uh, and still understanding that those things, that those things that they're a part of uh, benefit from, you know, remaining in a, in a relationship with the other regions of the country and working together. Uh, now, that's obviously going to require, uh, you know, severe uh, rolling back of federal power. Um, I think what's going on in Texas right now is great. I was going to say, you know, yeah. <laughs> fed, fed, federal power is never going to be rolled back um, through like legislation or something through a form that is not going to happen. It's going to be rolled back through confrontation or it's not going to be rolled back. That's it. You have to call their bluff and make them do the thing they're threatening to do and then see how people respond to that and whether they're willing to take it or not. And, you know, my bet is that this is not 1861. You know, this is a totally different scenario where, uh, you know, people they're not they're not sending the army into Texas. And if they try, then this whole thing is over. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think that, you know, at the same time, though. You know, look. Uh, some kind of peaceful devolution of, of power and identity, that's important too, down to a more local or, or regional level. Uh, doing that without hitting any of those tripwires that send us into a real conflict, it's going to be very tricky, but it's the necessary, that, that's the necessary path we have to travel. And I think as we do it, we really have to keep in mind that, you know, America has never really had a civil war. You know, even our civil war was really just we broke into two countries and had a regular war. I guess you had a civil war in, you know, uh, Missouri and some of the places out West and other, uh, other places, but, you know, a civil war is Sarajevo, it's Beirut. You don't want anything like that. You don't want something, you know, you don't, you, you don't want to engage in a conflict with your neighbors, you know, that is not fought and won on battlefields, but it's fought in like, you know, damp basements with people tied to chairs and, you know, pliers and blow torches and you don't want any part of that and uh that's you know when things kind of end up up for grabs if there is sort of a you know people see federal power beginning to break and which region or which communities are going to pick up which pieces there's a great danger that we break out into some kind of a some kind of conflict like that and i think it's something that you know, even uh, as members of the right, maybe especially as members of the right, because right now, whether we like it or not, we are very disorganized and we don't have a lot of um, ability to 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 exercise organized power um, that we should probably be avoiding uh, any, any anything like that pretty much at all costs. And at least, you know, for, for the time being, again, until until we get organized and um that has to start at the local level. It has to start at the state level. It's not something that, you know, you're going to send enough of your congressmen to, to Washington and they're going to change it for the simple reason that, you know, the U.S. government is not the thing that we learned about from Schoolhouse Rock back, you know, when we were kids where, you know, I'm a bill and this is how a law gets passed and that's how our government operates. It's like, no, like 
99.9% of our government is just this giant unelected bureaucracy that runs the state regardless of who's in office, who don't even have a lot of times, particularly a lot of a, a lot of respect for the people who are in office. I mean, we saw that in the Trump years, obviously, but we see it with Biden too. I mean, could it ever be laid more bare yeah. that the president doesn't really matter with yeah. the way things are set up? Who right really now? believes that Joe Biden runs the United States? Yeah, Anyone, nobody. And does even leftists believe that? I think even when like the people who elected him on some level had to be conscious that they weren't really electing him. They were reelecting the system. You know, let's get this Trump guy out of here and just let the system go back to being, you know, what it is. But, you know, I, I, I experienced this when I uh, worked for the DOD for a long time as a civilian engineer. You know, we'd be in there in our office, in our building, and uh, we'd get a new secretary of defense and a new secretary of the Navy and a new chief of naval operations and so forth. And you start to see signs pop up all over the building. Here's a new program. It's the SNAP program, you know, where we're going to do all these things and reform this. And, and after a couple of years, the secretary of the Navy would get changed out again and all those posters would get taken down. And we just learned to ignore them because they didn't matter. Nothing. You could change the president, everybody on down. And we felt at most little ripples in how it actually affected the way we did our jobs in, in, you know, we were the ones closest to the ground, actually, actually running the system. And it's like that everywhere, you know, that politicians come and go. And if you're an SES employee or GS-15 uh, at, you know, the Department of Defense or, or the State Department or something, you've been there for 30 years, um, a president comes in. You, in your career, you've seen seven presidents come and go. And, and, and you've gone through that process that we went through in our office where we kind of realized that like, yeah, they come and go and nothing really changes. We just are here doing our jobs. We're the real power here. And, you know, that's, that's the system we've got now. It's going to be, it's going to be difficult to break, but I mean, we're very fortunate, you know, in the fact that whether they like it or not, uh, you know, the American people as a whole still have, uh, a certain amount of residual respect for things like the constitution and, and these traditions so that, you know, if it does come down to an open conflict between our elected officials and the bureaucracy, you know, I think that, uh, especially if you don't have somebody who's as personally, uh, polarizing as a guy like Trump, although, you know, a less polarizing person might not be willing to take on. I was going to say, I think you actually have to have that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody who is concerned about whether, people, you know, like them is not going to, is not going to take that fight on. Uh, but I think that, you know, it, it, I think that the elected officials can win that fight. Uh, but it's, but it's a tough one. I mean, you're talking about an extraordinarily entrenched power system, you know, and dislodging it is, is going to require the same effort or, or, or just the same level of decay, which is the dark side that brought down the Soviet Union, because it's that deeply entrenched, you know, and it's it, like, and when I say deeply entrenched, I don't just mean in their power. I mean, it has such deep penetration into our lives, into our communities, like that it would, it's going to be hard to extricate it. I mean, we have to be prepared to take up a lot of those functions that we said had been replaced, you know, that, that communities used to do, families used to do. And you think about like, wh why there are so many homeless people okay, there's a housing crisis, there's a mental illness and drug, all of these things, that's fine. But you go back 70 years ago, the reason there was no homeless crisis 
during the depression, even like, you know, you had like certain you know, Hoovervilles and stuff, but it, nothing like we're talking about today. And it's because there's a guy wandering around the streets, pissing himself and mumbling. And people aren't going to say like, there's a homeless guy. They're going to look and be like, isn't that the cousin of the Smith family over there? Hey, Smith right. family, when you're at church this Sunday, like, what are you doing? Like, why is this happening? And so there was just a level of accountability and self-help that, that doesn't exist anymore. And if we really want the things that we say we want, rolling back these systems of power, uh, we have to be prepared to take up the slack. Absolutely. You know, that, that's why I think even though many of the changes that we're talking about would be top down in, in a certain way, they can't happen until the bottom up, uh, you know, uh, systems are there to support it. If you don't have the communities, if you, if you can't take back that, I mean, you know, you're ready to send your, your, uh, your parent to a, you know, a federal nursing home or something. Well, no, yeah. that's not how that used <laughs> to work, you know, like, you know, and so you have to take out on, on a lot of responsibility things that are really inconvenient and expensive and difficult. The things that the state has taken off your shoulders have to be put back on your shoulders before you can roll back uh, many of these, uh, these types of power. But yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right. All right, guys, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up, but we're going to move to the, do you have time for a few questions? Um, yeah. Okay. Move to the questions of people real quick. Uh, do you want to let people know? I mean, I'm sure most people are already listening to the martyr paid podcast, but just in case, let people know where they can find your work. Um, sure. Yeah. I have a Substack, martyrmade.substack.com. Or if you go to iTunes or Spotify or whatever, you'll find the Martyr Made podcast. I also do a podcast called The Unraveling with my friend Jocko Willink. Um, we talk about sort of more contemporary and and more recent history, I guess. We've been doing a lot of Cold War history and, uh, and uh, contemporary politics. So that's about it. Yeah, like I said, the uh, the the Israel Palestinian one is a is a much must listen to, guys. Everybody has has to go back. Essential listening. All right. So Cooper Weirdo says, "Identity is that a brand or a TV show?" Yes, very good, sir. It's it's, it's a great question <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Uh, Costas uh, nineteen eighty three says, "Is there another way to pre order by uh, or buy the total state other than Amazon?" Some people don't want to subscribe to mega corporations, including me. Yeah, man. I'm sorry. I totally understand that at the moment. Uh, Regnery only has the distribution through, I think, well, you've got Amazon. If you want to go to, you know, uh, Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or Target, you can pre-order everything there, but those are also large corporations. It'll be at, you know, smaller bookstores upon release and you can buy it there. But at the moment, the the pre-releases, I think, are all, all the, or the pre-ordering is all through large institutions, unfortunately. Uh, George Hayduke says, we're not revolutionaries, we're reactionaries. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think that's uh, that's true in a sense, um, but I think uh, you, you have to understand that it, either way, the mindset has to be you are not the establishment. It, the establishment is not in your favor. Uh, and that's that's kind of the mindset. You, you know, the problem with the conservatives has been the idea that you're just conserving the institutions. And eventually, if you can just reform the institutions enough, it'll be fine. And I think that's a failing strategy that uh, we've seen over and over again. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the reasons that conservatives and just the right in general uh, has really found itself in a very difficult place over uh, sort of the more recent years, right? Is what that's what conservatism is like. If you're on the right in in a 
most societies, throughout most of the history of, of societies, you're the ones who are defending the institutions and defending the status quo against attacks from, from various directions and trying to keep these things going. And so they never really had to learn to organize. The institutions were their organization, you know? And so whereas the left, they're learning to organize door to door, factory to factory, street by street. And they, they have a deep, deep infrastructure and a, and a sort of a sort of institutional knowledge of how to do those things that the right absolutely does not have. And then one day the, the, the right woke up and found themselves completely cast out of all those institutions and realizing they have to manage to put together a counteroffensive and they don't have the, they don't really have the experience to do that. You know, you run into this a lot, like, you know, this is kind of what Spangler talks about with uh, Caesarism, where like the idea that once that is once you have a sort of internal proletariat, you know, uh, in a Toyn B sense that, uh, you know, needs to find a way to to uh, organize, to push back against the power structure that is predatory against them. Um you know, it's extro it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for them to like really organize on an organic level to do that. And so, what they opt for, especially once all these things have broken down, once you have, uh, you know, you're no longer living in a village, you're part of the Roman mob, you know, and you're kind of have that you're disconnected in that way. What you know, people do is they come together and they invest a man or a party with the authority, and and, and they back them, you know not say unconditionally, but, but somewhat unconditionally to go forward and act in their interest. And they don't ask much. You see this with Trump, you see it with a lot of, of the people who are most popular, you know, on the right is they don't seem in the, the national review types. They just can't understand this at all. That like, I thought these people, they, they, you know, they voted for Mitt Romney. They voted for John McCain and George Bush. I thought they cared about free market economics and they cared about X. And it's like, well, yeah, they kind of did. And they kind of still do. But right now, you know, what they're like, what's what's driving their decision making is they can just it's very simple. They can look up and see that these people hate me. That guy doesn't seem to hate me. And so I'm just going to throw in with that guy. And if he does things I don't like, I'll complain about it or whatever. But I'm throwing in with that guy. And, you know, that's how you get a Caesar figure, you know, a cult of personality around a person who goes in. And, you know, like Caesar himself, a second tier elite who was sort of felt, you know, who, who sort of felt looked down upon by some of the upper, upper tier elites, the Octavians and so forth. And, you know, that's very much Trump, you know, a second tier elite who maybe, uh, especially at the beginning, his, you know, he, people say he's just using the MAGA movement and the people to get revenge against these people he's resentful toward. And maybe it did start out that way. You know, but I think that, you know, as years go on and the same people that hate you hate him and vice versa, you do have a sort of bonding effect. And I would be I'd be very surprised. You have to be like a complete sociopath uh, to not feel a sense of affinity for the people who have stuck with you through everything that he's gone through, you know, at this point. And, you know, I mean, that's a powerful binding effect. You know, just the fact that how the Rex is born. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the fact that people can look and just say the people who have been attacking me, who hate me, like very openly hate me, hate my family, hate my community, hate my way of life. They hate him, too. And he doesn't look like me. You know, he lives in a place with golden toilet seats or whatever. But 
if they hate him and they hate me, like there must be something that, that, you know, that, that is there connecting us. And that's powerful. You know, it's really powerful. Yeah. This um, is something I tried to explain to DeSantis backers a lot. They're like, well, he's more competent. I'm like, yes, of course. But that is not what this is about. I know you did the same thing with the thread, you know, that you talked about, like Trump, Trump touched something about American identity, a live wire that no one else had touched in a long time. And you can't recapture that by just being really competent. Like that's, yeah. it's not the same thing. It's not the key ingredient. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not policy. And they, they just couldn't get past that. But and one, one thing I wanted to mention before we cut out is you were uh, talking, well, we were, we were talking a minute ago about the need to, you know, if we are going to replace these power structures, which is what we say we want to do, we have to be willing to take up, take up the slack and provide the services and do the things that the system kind of performs more or less well right now. Um, you know, that that's going to feel like a constriction on your freedom. Like you're going to feel, you're going to feel in a lot of important ways, less free than you do in this disconnected individualist society with a to you know, a total state overseeing everything you do and stuff, but you're going to, on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, there are going to be a lot more, uh, people, a lot more, a lot more things with claims on your time claims on your energy, you know, people who you owe things to, you know, just in terms of what's owed between us all as, as, you know, uh, members of communities. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's that thing, again, you talk to like uh, a lot of people from Southern Europe or, or, you know, the Arab world or something, and they feel so constricted by their extended family networks and all these expectations. And that's, that's true. I, you know, but my, my co-host on the unraveling Jocko, like his, uh, you know, his, his main kind of slogan or whatever is discipline equals freedom. And he means it in a lot of different ways that I'm not talking about here, but it's, it, it really is like a, a profound paradoxical statement in a lot of ways, you know, just like in your individual life, a person who uh, has no discipline, you might have the freedom to not have to, nobody tells you to do anything or whatever, but you don't have the freedom to do anything because you can't do anything. You don't have any agency because you don't have any discipline. You can't get anything done. And it, you know, it applies just sort of on this larger social level too, is, you know, the discipline being uh, accepting the obligations that are going to come with being a member of a community and understanding that the other alternative is to be governed by an abstract state that doesn't care about you and might even, you know, be your enemy. So. Yeah, the guy who's free to do all the drugs he wants, is he, is, does he have liberty? No, he's a slave to his addiction, right? And the liberty can only, you, you, can, you can only have liberty if you practice virtue in context of, of a community. And without the willingness to do that, then you will always be a master to some, or a slave to something, to another master. All right, so Matt uh, Greedier says, both of you guys are awesome. Love these long form podcasts on a work day. Glad you're listening, man. Really appreciate that. Uh, with a minute to go says, sorry about my comment over the holidays that you call for investing in community in 2024 was like Eric Hockner telling uh, Berliners to join an amateur orchestra instead of bring down the Berlin wall. Uh, yeah. I, I understand the impetus, like uh, the big action, the big victory. Uh, but, but as uh, Daryl has pointed out repeatedly here, 
if we don't build uh, the the structure on which you know you can you can put a society back on top of, you're not getting rid of the overbearing thing that is holding on everyone in thrall today. Perspicacious heretic says, when someone immigrates to a nation, what level of assimilation is needed? It seems based on what you're saying, uh, where you're saying you want some, but not completely. Well, again, it kind of depends on what your there. There's a lot of definite moving definitions here, uh, but you know most. And traditionally, a lot of cultures understood you could eventually move in, you know, and, and, and blend into different societies. But this was not a one year thing or a five year thing. It wasn't you don't just take a civics course. This was often a multi-generational commitment. If you wanted your family to really become part of an of another group, another nation, you really had to commit to a multi-generational uh, blending process. And if you want to continue to operate a multi-ethnic empire, you can do that. But you, I think you need to understand it in that way. If you actually do want to integrate people, if you really actually do want to assimilate people, you need to understand it as a process that goes on for many decades, many generations, not just something that happens because you come, come in and take a class and you know, raise your right hand. Uh, yeah, I don't have a lot to add to that. Fair enough. All right. Creeper Weirdo says we could elect Jesus Christ with Fred Rogers as VP and Judas would be on CNN tomorrow. Stop with this less polarizing poo. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, fair I think enough, everyone fair should, should learn that <laughs> lesson from Trump, if nothing else. Uh, K-Star says, uh, keep up, uh, keep it up, guys. That's what uh, uh, what's the next Martyr Made episode. Do you have a, a plan for the next series? Yeah, it's uh, well, I'm still working on my Who's America series, which is uh, history of various episodes from the labor movement. And the next one is it's been one of the most fun, fun ones to study. It's about the battle between the mob and the Communist Party for the uh, for control of the unions in Hollywood in the 20s and 30s and 40s. It's a, it's a fun story. Interesting. A lot of colorful, a lot of colorful characters, um, a lot of. Uh, yeah, deep history, deep, a lot of deep politics of like the early 20th century, like the things that really that, that touch on themes that we're talking about here, you know, and uh, the different paths that, you know, the the people who had come into America over the last 70 or 80 years at that point were taking to find their way in society. So it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. That does sound really good. I'm looking forward to that one. Life of Brian says uh, left left institution institutional capture created a mismatch between temperament and position. Left has institutions, but doesn't bother to maintain them. See the LA Times. The right can't. Uh, the right can't be insurgents. Uh, yeah, I would say that we can see that the left's uh, ability to maintain institutions is collapsing. A lot of that is their their circulation of elite is poor. They've blocked out everybody uh, with the wrong with the wrong positions uh, who is capable. There's an increasing number of wrong positions, and so therefore you must necessarily be selecting for uh, loyalty rather than talent and that that kind of naturally degrades any institution yeah uh, no doubt and then george hayduke says uh not revolutionaries meaning we can't go as a mob and burn down the world uh the old world even though it's broken a return of the king is more what we stand for yeah i think i think that that's right and i i feel like most people on the right understand this they're, they're not dispositionally uh revolutionary in that sense and so i, I think you're right that uh, restoration is probably uh preferable for most to revolution yeah sola not caesar <laughs> all right guys well we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up but once again daryl thank you so much for coming on man it's always great talking with you no doubt man keep up the great work
Thank you. And of course, if this is your first time on the channel, please go ahead and subscribe. Make sure you hit the notifications so you know when we go live for the streams. And of course, if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, you can subscribe to the Or McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do that, please make sure to leave the rating or review. It really helps with the algorithm. All right, guys, thank you once again for watching. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.